is the Beyond the Studio podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. And we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist. Here we'll share honest conversations with artists, makers, and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio. Since this is an adult podcast hosted by two young adults, there's a possibility of some adult language being used. If this might offend ears around you, be sure to pop in your headphones before listening to this episode. On today's episode of Beyond the Studio, we are so fortunate to have Amir Fala with us. Uh, Amir is calling us from his studio, it looks like in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, and Amir holds a BFA from the Maryland Institute College of Art and Baltimore, as well as an MFA from UCLA. He has had numerous exhibitions globally and has been the recipient of grants from the Joan Mitchell Foundation and recently the California Community Foundation. Um, so we are so very excited to talk with him today, and Amir, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, do you want to start by just telling us a little bit about your background and your like describing your work and your process. So I grew up, uh, I was born in Iran, moved to uh, Virginia right outside of DC when I was about like five or six. And uh, I got into art by way of like two different subcultures. I got into, one of the first things I got into when I moved to the US was skateboarding. And uh, I think that really kind of changed my life forever. Uh, One of my neighbors was into it. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, oh, it's something that you can do by yourself and you don't need anybody else's help. And I always kind of had like an independent streak so I got interested in skateboarding through skateboarding I got interested in in graffiti and uh, I painted graffiti for many many years to get better at doing graffiti I started taking art classes in junior high at some point I realized oh I actually like art and I'm like halfway decent at it and I won this like small mural contest when I was in eighth grade and and immediately uh you know, I was just like, oh, I'm good at this. I'm not good at anything else. I'm going to do this and focus all my efforts on, on it. So that's kind of how I got interested in that. And then just since you guys both went to Micah, a little fun tidbit is uh, my my eighth grade class. Uh, one of the, like the, you know, like the Micah reps came to the yeah. school to talk about the school and tell you what it was, it, what it's like. And, you know, you could go to art school and I had yeah, never even thought about it. I used to do it. that for Micah. So that would have been me a year ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I listened to your episode and you and I actually have a lot of very bizarre things in common, which we can get into later. But yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about a really random story, but I'll save it for a little bit. Okay. So anyway, so this Micah rep came and started talking about the school and I was like, this looks amazing. I want to go there. And it was the first college I'd ever heard about or even considered. And then I remembered at the time the school was like $10,000 a year. Oh, my God. And I was like, $10,000? I was in eighth grade. So that that just seemed like an insane price tag. And I went up to my art teacher. And I was like, uh, I think her name was like Miss Blade. And I was like, Miss Blade, this is like the cost of like a new car. You know, like who has that? You're telling me I could buy a new car every year or go to college? And it just sounded so absurd that anybody would spend that kind of money on school. And it was like so beyond my 
my wildest dreams. And she was like, well, you know, if you work hard and you get really good, you know, you can get a scholarship and go there for free or, you know, they'll help you out. And uh, lo and behold, I applied to like two art schools and one of them was the Corcoran in DC and one of them was was Micah. I got into both and, you know, I just, I ended up going to Micah because they gave me the most money. They gave me a scholarship and I actually ended up working. That's why I chose Micah. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so it's funny because it was the first school I learned about and I just kind of like fell in love with the idea of it before I even visited. And I also worked in the admissions office for like two, three years. Oh, I didn't realize that. (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. So I have a lot of great admissions office stories too. I worked with Teresa and a bunch of other people there for for like a good two years. world. Wow. So, uh, so yes, yeah, so that's kind of like a little summary up to college. So how did just your work and I don't know, your whole perception of being an artist as, as sort of a profession, did that change significantly when you got to MICA? Were, was that sort of the first time that you were really surrounded by this different type of creative community than, you know, the people that you would make art with and, and do graffiti with back home. What was that experience like for you just going there for, for college art school? Well, I went to school in the suburbs of Virginia and um, I, my family, grew, at least while I was like a teenager, we didn't have a lot of money, but we lived like in this town called Fairfax which certain parts of her were extremely wealthy. And so I was like, when I, I wasn't poor, but I was like lower middle class is the best way to describe it. But I would go to school with these like really entitled like rich kids. And um, I never kind of, you know, it wasn't that I was an outcast, but I just never fit in. I wasn't, I had like maybe like five or six people that I was, that I hung out with there. But for the most part, everybody that I spent time with was, didn't go to that school. So at a very early age, I think right around the time I was like 13 or 14, I I realized I wanted to be an artist. And I was like, I'm halfway decent Mm -hmm. at this. And it's, it's exciting. Okay, I'm going to be an artist, not knowing what that actually meant. So by the time I showed up at Micah, I just had like laser focus and I was like I'm going to be an artist and I'm going to be really good at it and I'm going to be successful and whatever it takes. When I got there I had this like rude awakening because I realized that there was all these kids that went to private schools or went to like magnet schools that had like special training as an artist. You know they, they, they were just light years ahead of me you know so it was a it was a big wake-up call like hey you don't know shit like you got you got you got on all right you know by luck but really um, there's all these kids that are like better draftsmen new they're better with paints like uh somehow i ended up in an ap painting class and you know everybody was painting in oil and i'd never used oil paint before so i didn't even know that you mixed medium with oil i tried to mix water and um Mm -hmm. i had this teacher his name was carl connelly and uh oh my god did you guys know carl yeah yeah He was a big mentor of mine at Micah. Oh, really? I had taken Same a here. level painting class with him and then um, just kind of got to know them and their family. Actually started babysitting for their son, uh, who was about two at the time. And now I think he just turned eight. Wow. He actually just turned nine. And now I'm no. babysitting him periodically. You're kidding. And I do a so lot of just photography assisting for Carl. And- that's hilarious. So mention my name to Carl. Yeah. I will. That's incredible. He'll tell you a lot of great stories. So I'll tell you a short story about Carl. He really changed my Perfect. life and he was a huge important figure in my like early 
art endeavors. So, you know, my first day of school, yeah. I got my first class was this AP painting class with Carl. And you guys both know he's like an incredible figurative painter. And I was coming in and I was doing these like kind of like Rauschenberg, like teen angsty, like abstract paintings where I was just throwing everything in there, you know, fabric dryer sheets and glue and just whatever I could get my hands on. They were all about texture and they were very grimy. So I didn't really know how to paint. I had some like raw talent, but none of it was like harnessed. And the first assignment Carl had was to build like a 56 inch stretcher from scratch, stretch canvas on it, and then do a, some sort of painting with oil. So I didn't know how to stretch canvas. I didn't know how to build a stretcher. And I definitely didn't know how to use oil. So when I turned in my painting, you know, that's a, the rectangle kind of looked like a triangle, you know, it was all bowed. And, and I showed it to Carl. And I, like I said, I didn't know how to use mediums. I was just like smearing paint around. And he took one look at this painting and he just like started shaking his head like, what the fuck have you gotten yourself into? <laughs> <laughs> and he said something to the point of like he was just like are you serious and I was like yeah what what <laughs> and he was like maybe this isn't maybe painting's not your strong suit do you make other work you know oh, no. <laughs> I mean he was saying it half jokingly but I mean it really yeah. like lit a fire inside me and that day I like went you know it was like pre-google so I like ran to the library and I like opened up every single art book I could find on painting and just started educating myself and I have to say I probably used that library more than any other kid because I was hungry to learn and I had the desire but I just I was like man I can't even compete at the college level because I don't know how to even use the materials so it's you know yeah. like that fear uh really got me going so even though I was like the worst kid in the class, I really liked Carl and he, he was the first person to introduce like real working New York artists to the classroom. And so he just made me fall in love with painting and like the art world. And I remember the sensation show had happened in New York and he had brought down the catalog and he showed me all this amazing work and it just blew my mind. And um, so I still, yeah, I still keep in touch with him. And I didn't make like halfway decent figurative paintings until like 15 years out of Mica. And so when I started making the work that I'm making now, I emailed or I Facebooked Car Carl and I was like, Carl, it only took me like 15 years, but look, I'm painting the figure. <laughs> Look where I am now. Yeah, and I use actually his painting medium. If I use oil, I still use his like mixture that he gave to his students back then. So, uh, that's wow. so good. Yeah, he holds a really special place. He's like a really, that guy's like an amazing teacher, right? and I, I really owe a lot to him. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's such a great story. Yeah. What a small world, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Another question, just more related to the the kind of like creative community you were building while you were there at MICA. What were some of the other things you were involved in just outside of your studio courses? And not to just take the conversation in a different direction altogether, but I know something that Amanda and I are both really interested to hear about is how you started and then built um, Beautiful Decay sure. uh, magazine as well, along with your um, studio work and just building up your own practice as an artist. So can you just talk a little bit about some of the other things you were involved with at MICA and then how that maybe, you know, evolved or launched you into those first couple years after graduating. Sure. And what that time was like. So I, um, when I was at, when I was at MICA, I always had an entrepreneurial spirit, even from an early age. I always had like these like weird hustles, you know, like kids in my school wouldn't go to DC because they were like scared of this big city. So I would go down there and like buy like Nike knockoff watches and sell them to kids in my mm. school for like 15 bucks, you know, markup. Oh my God. 
guy. You know, so I always, I always just had this entrepreneurial spirit, and it comes from my father. My parents came here with $85 and, like, rebuilt their entire lives from, from nothing. Wow. I think that knowing what it's like to have something when we lived in Iran, like, we were middle class. Then we lived in Turkey, in the ghettos of Turkey. We got, it's a long story. But anyways, we didn't have a lot of money. And then we moved to America with nothing. And seeing my family go without really just mm-hmm. put this fear in me that, like, I have to be self-reliant and like, I always just had these like little like job hustles for lack of a, you know, they weren't really jobs, but ways of making money. So in high school, Mm -hmm. I had actually started Beautiful Decay with my next door neighbor. And it was just like a black and white, like punk zine. Mm -hmm. A lot of our friends were like in the punk scene in DC and in the hardcore scene. And um, they were all musicians, but Jay and I didn't, we weren't in any bands or anything. We were more into art and graffiti. So we Mm -hmm. started this magazine. I just something to kind of control to the to this community that we were a part of so we did like three issues we didn't think of it at all you know we sold them for a dollar and we just kind of forgot about it when we went to college mm-hmm. and then my last year at mica i sold a couple of like little paintings for like 500 bucks a piece and i had like between that and some of the other money i had from various jobs i had five thousand dollars and i just looked at the pile of money and i was like well i can either like just fuck around and waste all this money or maybe i can do something <laughs> cool with it something that's like substantial or you know that would be interesting and so the first issue of beautiful decay cost me five thousand bucks wow so you really just put everything into that yeah yeah i mean it wasn't a lot of money and you know i had basic needs taken care of and i was just gonna fuck around and like go to like out to eat or like buy clothes or something stupid with it so yeah i convinced two designers from the design department to design a magazine for free for me in exchange for exposure you know and i was like well you guys are doing these like fake design class you know, projects, you could do, you could design a real publication that I'll get printed and distributed. You know, it'll have your name on it. I'll give you a bunch of free copies, you know, like, and you can have something real out in the world as a portfolio piece. And so they, they were like, yeah, sure. And, you know, they had fair amount of creative freedom. I didn't know anything about design. And so that, that's kind of how it was made. Like they designed it. I, I came up with the content. We did one issue. Then I kind of had like a little, not a falling out with them, but they didn't want to do it again. So I found this other guy to design the second issue. Uh, that was like slightly younger than them kind of the same deal because I wasn't making any money on it and then by the third issue I started teaching myself uh, some of the design softwares and I just started designing it myself. So, and that kind of tailspin me into like a whole like design, art direction, creative direction, like side career that I had no desire for, but I just learned on the job. I was, you know, but, but, you know, I've probably designed like, I don't know, 40, 50 books and magazines by now. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, so I have like a ton of experience in this world, but it was all just self-taught just by looking at books and things like that. And so, yeah. so yeah, that's kind of like how, that's kind of how Beautiful the case started. And then I went to grad school, you know, I went to grad school at, at UCLA and I had the scholarship. Mm-hmm. There was like a full ride and they paid you a stipend called the Jacob Javits Fellowship. And so when I moved to LA, I kept doing the magazine, just kept, it kind of snowballed, kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time I graduated UCLA, it was like a real publication with like a staff and we had an office and literally the week that I graduated, we opened our first office and like hired our first employees and started paying ourselves. Oh my God. Wow. And did you always sort of envision that for the publication or was it just like one issue at a time? It just kept, you kept rolling with it and it kind of evolved um, from there. And- there was no plan, zero business plan. <laughs> 
Uh, I had two business partners in it who I met in Baltimore right before we all moved away from Baltimore. And they were very instrumental in kind of helping grow it. And they were communications majors from a local Baltimore college. I forget which one, but they kind of had like the business side experience. But we were all like in our early 20s. So none of us had any real experience, you know. Mm -hmm. So we just learned on the job. But I handled the creative side. They handled the business side. And it just kept, you know, honestly, the timing was really right. We kind of functioned like how a blog like a very influential blog or now an Instagram account functions you know we were finding mm-hmm. art and design and illustration that uh, no one had seen but that was like really interesting and then we were exposing it so now how like somebody will like regram something on Instagram by some obscure person in the Midwest well I would mm-hmm. like put that person in the magazine and so we always put these really talented people on the cover but no one had ever heard of any of the artists on, on the covers of Beautiful Decay and that was like a big part of our mission statement yeah. Mm-hmm. And how are you finding and sourcing these artists? Were they people that you knew often or what other ways were you getting exposure yourself? Well, the internet was just taking off. So, you know, I was finding mm-hmm. stuff online, but I was just like, you know, I, I love discovering stuff that no one's ever heard of. So I would just like, I'd be like a record collector, except I'd be looking for art and design. So it'd be like word of mouth. I would find things in like mm-hmm. obscure European design books and I would like email the artists, you know. It was just, you know, like actually one of the artists who I first contacted was an artist that Carl Connolly had told me about and I just found his email yeah, online yeah. somewhere and I just cold you know I just cold called him and he ended up turning me down but it was like that I was he would it was you know this artist Chris Finley I saw his paintings and I was like oh these are really great and I just wrote him an email and he wrote me this like very like formal polite like no thank you email back you know and uh, now I, yep. i've never met him in, per- in person but we run in the same circle so it's it's just it's funny like you know yeah. he probably he, i think we're facebook friends and he probably doesn't even remember me emailing him you know but i was just like i would find something that i thought was interesting <laughs> Shout out to him now. yeah you know um yeah and then how are you guys getting funding to start bringing on a staff and getting an office space so that didn't happen. The fun, the, I mean, we always made money, but like it wasn't like making a profit for many, many, many years. Uh, so from like mm-hmm. 2000 to 2005, every penny we made, we would throw back into it. But for the first issue I funded and then the second and third issue, we would throw these huge warehouse parties in Baltimore. There was these bike couriers that lived downtown and they had this huge grimy loft for like $400 a month rent. Okay. And so I'd approach him and be like, look, I'm going to throw this crazy rager at your apartment. It's going to be like half art show, half party. I'll pay you a hundred bucks and all the beer you can drink. And you let us charge five bucks donation at the door. So we would have like... That sounds mm-hmm. perfect. Yeah. So we had like people from all over the country, like driving down all up and down the East Coast. These parties got so big. We had people coming in wow. from Kentucky, all over Virginia, Maryland, oh DC, Boston, New York, New Jersey. I mean, they really were like... And this is like, again, pre-internet promotion so i was literally calling friends in different cities and then making like shitty black and white kinkos flyers for these parties but they got some buzz (laughs) because the graffiti world at that time was very like a lot of people had pen pals and it was kind of like this like weird network of people so like one friend would call another Mm -hmm. friend and this word would go up up and down the east coast so we would have these parties where like five six hundred people would come and they would each pay five bucks yeah that's yeah and then you know the the djs would get paid with beer everybody was all friends it was like it was just like hey we're gonna yeah, do this yeah. cool thing and we throw these art parties and uh so that's how i did the first couple of you know the three four issues and then we started slowly getting advertising and and every time we would make more money we would make the magazine look nicer so every issue
tissue, you could if you put them side by side, they get thicker, they get perfect bound, they get nicer and nicer mm-hmm. and nicer. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it just it, very organically, you know, like my partner has just got better at selling ads and we, we you know, we, it was a mom and pop operation. But, uh, you know, after doing it for, mm-hmm. I mean, the magazine, we did like 26 or 27 issues. So like by the time we got to, you know, issue 20, you know, we were getting major corporate advertising. Um, and we were doing events all over the country and, you know, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to say, I didn't even realize until I was researching more of your work, uh, to have you on this show that you started Beautiful Decay. And it was like so influential for me when I was younger, I just constantly went back to it to learn more about it and found so many cool artists through it. And when I made the connection, I was like, oh shit, this is great. I'm pumped. (laughs) <laughs> oh cool yeah yeah i mean i you know i, I kind of stopped doing it a couple of years ago um it's still like archived on online uh the website but it lived a lot yeah. of different lives but uh yeah i have people all the time um you know i started just working with a gallery in new york and like one of the people that worked there she was like i just realized you did beautiful decay and so it's 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 really it's cool it's cool <laughs> to hear you know people still remember it here and there but yeah yeah i think we just hit at, at a right time where people wanted to discover new things and they weren't and a lot of the bigger publications were just like rehashing the same five you know popular people and we really embraced the underdog you know we we did an issue that was called the underdogs you know (laughs) so because I was an underdog and nobody was paying attention to me I wanted to like celebrate all these great artists that nobody was paying attention to so you graduate from MICA you go on to graduate school at UCLA and Beautiful Decay is starting to organically take off for you what else is going on for you at that time and what were some of the other things that you were involved with um, in terms of your art career, like those first few years, they're right around graduate school. Um, like what were some of the other things that were starting to happen for you? So so anyway, so while this whole beautiful decay thing was happening, I was also trying to become an artist, you know. Um, and at that age, I kind of felt like really invincible and I felt like I could do everything and I could do everything at the same high quality. And now I think now that I have like some distance from it, I'm a little bit older, I've realized like I can't be, I can't do everything well. And I've just recently proven to myself that I can't do everything all at the same time at the same level. So, yeah. you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I was having a lot of success with, with art, you know, I got into UCLA, it's a great program. I had a full ride there. I mean, it was like an amazing mm-hmm. opportunity. And I have some regrets to it because, you know, Beautiful Decay was taking up so much of my time that I just didn't have the time and energy to really dedicate myself to my studio. So I was making work, you know, I was I was putting in the hours, but it was like more quantity quantity and not quality you know so I almost wish I didn't do it's like a catch-22 because I learned so much from doing the magazine you know but I probably could have benefited more from only focusing on the art stuff because it's easy to do a lot of things well if you do them one at a time and then you do do one of them really well and you become really successful and then you like kind of then have the resources and the help and kind of the knowledge to jump to another thing but I think it's very difficult to do multiple things and do them really well and if I heard myself saying this like 10 years ago I would have told myself to go fuck myself but I but unfortunately I can do it all and I will yeah but unfortunately I 
I've proven myself wrong because I realized yeah. as Beautiful Decay was getting bigger and bigger, you know, I realized that people started looking at me, like people in the art world started looking at me as a publisher and not as an artist. And I was like having shows all over. I was selling work, but they just weren't taking me seriously. Like, so I'd have dinner with some dealer and, you know, 15 minutes into it, I realized they wanted me to like write about their artists. And that's why we were like that, you know, or like they would do a studio visit, but it would be like a courtesy visit because they wanted something from me. And so a few yeah. years back, I realized, well, you know, a lot of things had changed, but I realized that if I really wanted to do the art thing, which is always my number one passion, Beautiful Decay wasn't my priority. It was always the artwork. Mm-hmm. I was like, all right, I really need to make a conscious effort to put all my eggs in, in this basket. If, if I want to be an artist, I need to like just go full speed at it. And I kind of, it was very difficult. It was very difficult for me to do because I love, I'm a very creative person and I am a very entrepreneurial person. So I get really excited about things easily. So if somebody's like, I got this new business idea, I'm like, great, let's do it. You know, because for me, it's like fun to, it's cre- business is creative, you know, um, the, the act of making a business is creative, but it would just be this like huge distraction. And so since I've kind of stepped away from all these different things that I used to do and just focus on the artwork, immediate results, like immediate, the work looks better, the response to the work is better, you know, the sales are better, the, the quality of people visiting my studio, everything is improved like tenfold. And a lot of times I wonder if, you know, I, I did a whole what if thing, like what if I had done this in grad school? Would I, would I be like three years further along? You know, would I be in this other person's position that I was also in grad school with? But, you know, who's to say? I don't know, you know, like I'm not a, I'm too cynical to say things happen for a reason, but maybe things do happen for a reason. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So do you think some of that was a product of just having more time to spend on your work? Or did you make like a really sort of public shift from working on the magazine to being in your studio? Like, how do you think that perception started to change? Um, Because it sounds like that's really what a lot of it was, uh, which is so interesting, because I wanted to ask a little bit about just the impact of the kind of creative community that I'm sure you've built up through doing that over the years and how that's informed and influenced uh, your work. And so I would think that that would only have really positive effects. Um, so it's, it's interesting to hear how maybe that perception about conflicting motivations or just, you know, your level of seriousness as an artist would be called into question because of your involvement in something like that. So when you decided to kind of step away from that and focus more on your work, did that happen in a really public way? Or how did you sort of convey that to, you know, either the collectors or galleries or people that you were working with? And and how did they come to see you as, you know, a bit more of a, just an artist as opposed to a publisher? I did a couple of different things. So number one, I started getting irritated that people didn't think of me, like when they heard my name, they didn't think of me as an artist, right? So simple things like I just stopped introducing myself as like a publisher of Beautiful Decay and just was like, oh, I'm an artist. And like you were saying, you you discovered mm-hmm. later on that I did Beautiful Decay, like that's by design. Like yeah. my bio is built that way, mm-hmm. you know, it's because I don't, although I'm super proud of it it's not that I'm ashamed of it you know but I found it to be a huge hindrance so I just made the conscious decision to kind of like push it back so I took my name off the website and I was like you know if people come across it great but really I'm mm-hmm. I'm trying to focus you know I don't you know like people have very short attention spans and this is 
maybe this is something I learned from be- doing Beautiful Decay and dealing with marketing and stuff like that. But you really want people to like focus on this, like have laser focus on this one thing that you do. So if I have all these other things that I'm doing, it's distracting and it's also confusing for people, mm-hmm. you know? So they're like, are, well, are you, are you a real painter? Or are you a Sunday painter? Or do you just like to dabble, you know? And yeah. and I was always 100% in with, with the artwork. So I really had to like, I don't want to say like rebrand, but really like just turn the focus towards art. And I don't think it was just internal. Mm-hmm. I think it was, uh, I think other people had that question too, you know? Like uh, they, were, they were unsure. And I also think it's not just a perception thing that's benefited. I actually think it's not... Not having all that other stuff in your brain it's distracting like mm-hmm. I used to pride myself on multitasking I'm like the world's best multitasker and now I'm actually trying to not multitask at all I actually don't like to multitask because yeah. I've noticed that like I can multitask and do everything about like 70% well you know which is pretty good but I can't ever make all those yeah. things go to a hundred percent and with art yeah. if you want to be like an if you want to be the type of artist that I want to be so I want to work in like a commercial and nonprofit world so I want to show museums and galleries and I want to sell my work I want to be in biennials you know if you want to be in that world you you know you have to it's so it's so competitive and it's so difficult that you have to give it a hundred percent there is no you can't fuck around you know like and at least I'm, I'm just talking about my personal experience so you know I'm sure other people have different ways but I've done the other way it just does not work for me and I also don't know that many other people yeah. that do it mm-hmm. at a very high level and do it well you know I know a lot of people that do it like a pretty good job but I didn't go through all, you know, all this education and all this work to like do something pretty good. I want to be like the best, you know, that's like my, my goals are like so unachievable that I, even if I get halfway, it's pretty good, you know, but in order to do that, I realized I really need to like focus and just do one thing and just do it well. And then maybe, you know, like, you know, I also rethought about like, well, I really enjoy publishing, but what if I just publish my own book once a year and I publish a book about my own art, you know, or something that relates back to my work so that it all helps one another because being the publisher of beautiful decay didn't help my career at all a lot of people think it does they're like oh he got that show because no it's the exact opposite effect yeah that's so interesting to hear and a lot of i mean i hear that all the time people think like i get hookups because i did the math like not at all it was like a complete pain in the ass. It was the exact opposite. <laughs> well, maybe we can just rewind a little bit then and focus a little more on your own art career. And how did you just start to build that up, whether it was some of the the opportunities that you were finding just out of grad school, like starting to show and exhibit your work? What were some of the key moments for you in that time? And, and you know, have you been not only developing your work, but um, really building that side of your career over the years? Uh, so. So I, you know, when I was an undergrad, I would, this is like back in the days of slides, I literally would just like send mm-hmm. slides out to galleries all over the country, places I've never been to, a cold call, you know, and uh, that didn't really get me far. And when I moved to LA, you know, the LA, it's like the, from Baltimore, it's like the real art world. All of a sudden I got thrown into this, the real commercial art world out here. And um, I didn't know anything about it. So a lot of the very first shows I got was just from being at, at, at UCF 
UCLA. When I was at UCLA, the school's program was like white hot. It was like everybody in the entire country, if not the world, was like paying attention to who was graduating from there. So a lot of people I went to grad school mm-hmm. with became instantaneous art stars, you know, and some of them are like some of the biggest artists right now and some of them fizzled away and, you know, and everything in between. But so just by sheer closeness to all these other people, you know, I became part of the LA art community and I started getting little group shows and but it was very organic you know and then Mm -hmm. when I graduated it was very difficult because I had a lot of friends who were having these mega shows at these like the world's best galleries and I really didn't have anything happen like that but I did get this one random email one day from a gallery this is in 2005 from a gallery in Dubai and they just emailed me out of the blue and said hey we're about to open a gallery in Dubai Uh, we love your work we'd like to we'd like to show you out here I started thinking what the hell is Dubai I had no idea what Dubai was now that sounds funny that sounds funny right now but in 2005 literally nobody I knew knew where Dubai was literally nobody the only people that knew the only people that had ever heard of Dubai was my parents and that's because we were from Iran which is like right next door and I call up my dad and I'm like, yeah. have you heard of this place called Dubai? I'm not sure if it's like a city, a country, like I've never heard of it. And he's like, yeah, that's the desert. And he's like, what about it? And I was like, uh, you know, I, there's gallery contact. And he's like, I'm thinking of having an art show out there. And, and my dad's like, I'm there's no galleries in Dubai. It's nothing but like Bedouins and like the, the desert. And I'm like, dad, get on the internet. If you research Dubai, I think they've built a couple of buildings. And like he went on and he's like, what the fuck? Oh my God. Yeah, he had been there when he was like a teenager, but you know, Dubai is like 30, 40 years old. So when my dad was a teenager, it literally was like, there was like barely any buildings there, you know? Yeah. Wow. And now it's one of the most explosive cities just doubling over. So I sent, you know, I had enough common sense to email the gallery back and just ask him very basic questions like, will you pay for shipping both ways? Is the work going to be insured? Will you fly me out for the opening? And these are always like bullshit detectors for any legit gallery. Like if galleries won't do those mm-hmm. things for a solo show, chances are not worth your time, you know, unless it's like an alternative space or something like that. But um, they said yes to all yeah. my like little test questions. And I was like, all right, send me a ticket. I'll, I'll do it. So my first show out of grad school was in Dubai. And it ended up being that I was like, one of the first like contemporary artists ever to show in Dubai. And I was this gallery's first artist. And so I ended up being on like the ground floor of like the, the art scene of Dubai of what it is now. So this is before they had art handlers there. There was no framers. There was no galleries. There was nothing there. There was literally no art infrastructure. How did they even come across your work? Do you know how they found you? It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. So my mother, bless her heart, she, um, when I was at Micah, she was like, there's this like local little Iranian newspaper and they like highlight like creative Iranians, you know, and this is like a magazine with like no distribution. It's like very niche, like, (laughs) you know, Iranian (laughs) publication Mm -hmm. and they're, they're going to write an article about you. And I was like, all right, whatever. And I'm like thinking like, what the fuck? These people don't know anything about art. Like it's a complete waste of time. Right. (laughs) So my dealer, when she was in college, she had read that article about me. And the article was when I was like 19. So I made terrible work, like, you know, but she remembered my name. And then when she decided she was going to do the gallery, she looked me up online. And luckily, I had a website. I had a, I had a website since like the late 90s, uh, because because I learned from Beautiful Decay. So I had a website, she contacted me out of the blue. So, you know, thanks, mom. 
Wow. Oh, my God. Mom for the win. <laughs> yeah. yeah, My mom's been right, unfortunately, about a lot of stuff. Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah. I mean, it was just it was a complete fluke. Complete fluke. And, it, and you know, now they're, the gallery's called The Third Line, and they're actually, like, one of the best galleries in the entire Middle East. And they do all the biggest fairs, and they show really huge artists. And it's, it's an amazing space to work with. They're my oldest gallery. Wow. And you still work with them? Yeah, today? I just had a show there in May. So I've been to Dubai like 15, 16 times. And so I'm part of like the old school Dubai. Wow, that's amazing. I'm part of the old school Dubai art scene, you know, uh, which is only like 11, 12 years wow. old. So yeah, it was just like a fluke, you know, but that that's kind of like that was the first, you know, real legit show that I had. And it took me, mm-hmm. I just had a solo show that opened last week in LA with a gallery called Shuleman Nazarian that, that represents me. But, you know, it took me, I don't know, how many years has it been since 2002? 14, 15 years for me to get a gallery representation in LA. So I started by showing in other places. You know, I showed in Europe a little bit and quite a lot in the Middle East. You know, I showed in Boston for a little while, but LA is such a big market. It was really hard for me Mm -hmm. to get a gallery here and kind of get a foothold, even though I lived here and I knew everybody in the art world here. Um, And did you feel like some of those other showing opportunities just started coming about organically as well? Like you'd get the occasional invitation or were you really actively applying to just everything that you thought might be a fit? How did those things start to come about? I never did calls for entries ever. Mm-hmm. Or that's not true. Maybe I did like one or two like an undergrad, but for the most part, I didn't do anything that I push every artist to not do anything where you have to pay a fee. I think that's like a complete, it's just fucked up. We're broke as it is. Like we don't need any more help, like losing money. <laughs> so I'm a, I'm a big proponent of artists, not like these juried shows. Just don't do it. It's not, I've never heard of, you're never going to see somebody in a museum that started their career with, you know, a juried show. It just doesn't happen. You know, maybe, maybe it happens for like one guy, you know, but, but I just think for the most part, I don't think those shows help out. So I think it's more about building your own community, you know, like being in touch with fellow artists, you know, in in LA right now, there's this huge explosion of artist run spaces. And some of the artist run Mm -hmm. spaces actually Mm -hmm. do better than the commercial galleries as far as like getting reviews and, and some of them have turned into commercial galleries. And they're like started by artists. There's like a huge history of that in LA. And I think that's a better thing. So if you want to start your own career, you know, move all your furniture in your in your house into the garage and uh, do a show in your living room with like some of your favorite artists, you know, and maybe ask somebody that's a little bit higher up in, than you and like, you know, beg, beg them to put a little small piece, even if it's like a little thumbnail drawing as a way to like pull in like larger artists. I think that is a much more organic way. Um, I didn't do a lot of like, I, I, I didn't do a lot of uh, like things like that myself. But if I was starting out now, that's what I would do. I think that's a lot more like building your own community and building excitement mm-hmm. for your immediate community is a lot more worthwhile than like cold calling galleries, you know, any gallery that's like good, they're not gonna like look at your packet and they just they're just not. You know, it's just, it is what it is, but, uh, it happens sometimes, but if you ask most people, you know, they might take a glance at it, but it's, it's a long shot. I think it's a lot more, you know, it's like your time is better spent creating some sort of creating your own buzz rather than like waiting, you know, like 
reaching out to all these random people that are like busy and don't want to be bothered. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about your show and we'll actually air this on October 19th. So it should be like right in the middle of your show, but I'd love to hear about the show that you have. Sure. So the, uh, the show's called A Stranger in Your Home. And I started thinking about it a little bit. I have, I have a two-year-old son. So when I, when I had my son, I started thinking about some of the themes. And then later on when the election was kind of happening and then or like in January, I was like, okay, I got the idea for the show. But it's really about, the show's about the immigrant experience in America and how after Trump won, I really felt like a stranger in my own home. You know, I, I've lived in America since I was five. You know, I, I sound like an American. I talk like an American. I dress like an American. But I never truly kind of felt like an American. And I, I don't know if that makes sense, but like um, I never felt at home in my own skin like for I'll give you a great example so like you know I have, I have this kid and my wife is Puerto Rican but she's very fair skinned she kind of looks like Molly Ringwald so she's like a really light skinned uh, redhead which is Puerto Rican you know so she doesn't look like what she look you know Puerto Rican and I'm a really really dark skinned Iranian you know most Iranians look kind of like Italian but I look more on like the Indian or Mexican side of the spectrum you know as far as like skin tone so I don't look like what I am either and so we had this baby and then we have this like really cute super white kind of like light brown haired baby that he looks a little bit like his mom but he looks nothing like me at all I mean it just looks like I borrowed somebody's kid you know <laughs> And so I've noticed this pattern where like if uh, on a weekday I take him to a park, uh, people will start looking at me. Uh, the na- there's, you know, the parks in my neighborhood, they're like filled with nannies, you know. And all the nannies and the moms and the dads, they're all looking at me and they're trying to figure out. I can see it in their brains. Like you could see them like thinking like, is that guy the nanny or is that his kid? Mm. They're trying to like do the color the color math you know like is that kid adopted you know is is he like some weird kidnapper that took somebody's baby (laughs) like you just get these weird looks you know and it just happens over and over again and nobody says anything and it's not malicious but they just you know it's like light skin dark skin doesn't match up and they're you know Mm -hmm. and unless my wife's with me it's like I've even seen her like walk up to us later and the people's like expressions they're like oh okay I get it (laughs) like dark plus light equals media (laughs) and um so anyways so you know i started thinking about these experiences and Mm -hmm. and uh so anyway so the whole show is about kind of the the immigrant experience in, in the u.s so there's one component where there's a series of these portraits of immigrants from all walks of life from russia from Asia, uh, you know, from the Middle East, and um, and there's portraits of all of them, and then there's this house-like structure that I built in the gallery space that houses the stained glass inside this house. It kind of like it looks like a house or a chapel, and inside that structure, there's also this audio recording of me and my parents talking about our experience moving from Iran to America. And in this recording, uh, like I said, we had this really like kind of traumatic two-year journey to come to America. You know, people stole our money. We, You know, we had this horrible experience and came here penniless. And I was so young, I only remembered like little snippets of it. And so I approached my parents and, you know, I said, you know, I want to record 
exactly what happened just so I know for sure so it's not foggy I just know you know like exactly what happened but also for like I want my son to know like how he ended up here you know like yeah. like that your grandparents like suffered a lot to, to to come here and so there's this recording of my parents talking to t- talking about this very you know very depressing and very tumultuous time in our lives and in that like little room there's like a one bench and the bench faces the stained glass that's a portrait of a figure holding a baby like kind of cradling it like kind of like a madonna and child and behind this figure there's these like sun rays very religious looking uh but instead of holding a baby the the figure is holding a sock monkey and so the figure and and in, in all my work the faces of the figures are covered in some sort of fabric so it's a portrait it's a self-portrait of me um and i'm covered in like kind of like a flannel plaid pattern and it's just based off of one of my shirts like i wear a lot of shirts that have that kind of pattern on it and i was trying to think like uh what is a pattern that kind of represents me but also kind of feels to me like american something that i identify with like american males my age and it's like flannel you know Mm -hmm. like to me it's like kind of like it's like almost like a uniform for like mid-30s dudes you know (laughs) you know Yep. Yep. That's my husband's entire wardrobe. Right. Exactly. So, um, so I'm covered in this fabric and then the sock monkey has a couple of different meanings. You know, sock monkeys are very like iconic kind of American toy. You know, it's a very humble toy. It's inexpensive, Mm -hmm. but also it's, it was, it was a present that somebody gave to my, my son when he was born. It was one of his first stuffed animals. It's actually sitting. Mm -hmm. Here it is right here. (laughs) I got to return it back to (laughs) him. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, so the sock monkey is, it, it, you know, it's one of his toys. It's one of his favorite toys. But also, um, my, my nickname for my son is Monkey. So, because uh, he's always like crawling onto me. So it's a placeholder for him. And I wanted, I wanted you to be hearing this recording and staring at this image of me like holding, you know, this representation of like a father and child. And, and, and the stained glass is backlit with like an LED back, uh, backing. So it's li- literally emitting light. And it's, it's, for me, it's a very like uh, positive image. And uh, in, so in the, in the recording, it's 29 minutes long. And the last thing that my mother says in the audio text is that she says that she, you know, I asked her if it was worth going through all that hardship to come to America. And she says, you know, it was difficult and we went through a lot of hardship, but you know, now you're here, you, you know, you've had a successful life. Uh, you're in a great place. We're all very happy. And also our family has expanded because uh, you got married and now we have a grandson and I'm an only child. So it's like their one grandson. And they're like, you know, and now he can have this wonderful life in America and and just have that's full of possibilities and you know everything's great for him and so the the image the stained glass for me symbolized the next chapter in this story you know and this like uh it, it, like you know it, this is where the, the story picks up um it's kind of like a punctuation at the end of this like long you know tumultuous story so yeah and then there's a there's another audio component at the beginning of the entrance of the gallery when you walk in which has a recording of all the immigrants that I painted. It sounds like they're having a discussion about what it means to be American. So does being American mean being white? Mm-hmm. Do they feel American? Is there a time when they didn't feel American? So it's just like, a, it sounds like a roundtable discussion about like what is an American and how these immigrants feel about living in America and how they're treated and their different experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's incredibly relevant for what we're going through as a country today and also just important to have that kind of documentation for yourself for your own family experiences and I know 
I can't think of the name of it right now, but there is this, uh, this podcast, but also like storytelling business, I guess, that uh, sends this like airstream throughout the country and lets people interview conversations mm-hmm. with each other. And I always wish that I had. Oh, uh, is it story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. It story has more. that feel. It's a very mm-hmm. documentary esque audio recording, both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I keep trying to get my mom to do a story core interview with my grandmother because I learned about it after my um, grandfather had passed. And I remember how frustrating it was to not remember a lot of the stories that he had told me when I was kind of too young to understand or appreciate them. And it's, I know, you know, later in your life and in your son's life, like that's something that is going to be really cool to have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, also just to know where you came from is important, I think. For sure. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful conversation too, just about legacy and looking forward and, you know, what the potential for the future is. And I was um, actually excited to, to talk with you too about, um, a, a little bit of that fa- family dynamic and maybe how that's changed um, since your son did come into the world. And I really love the videos that you post on Instagram of him dancing <laughs> in your studio. And it's just, it seems like he's just such a part of, you know, your, your practice in life, obviously. But um, that's a conversation that we've had uh, yet had the opportunity mm-hmm. to have um, with someone on here. But it's um, something that we're we're really interested in hearing about too just how how does that come into play and you know how has that changed um, your work and your life and just affected some of the decisions you've made um, and then even just you know practically like is your son with you always in the studio while you're just <laughs> what at work um, just what is that dynamic uh, yeah like? so you know my wife and I we've been married for a while and uh, you know we own our own home she has a very successful career I'm doing pretty good so we were like, well, I guess we'll have a kid, you know, all the all the ducks are in a row and we have this very comfortable life. And um, having a kid, at least for the first couple of years, uh, have you guys ever seen Saving Private Ryan, the movie? No. OK, well, you, you might be able to just YouTube this the beginning. The opening scene is this like epic battle with like bullets whizzing by. And it's 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 pretty crazy segment of the movie. But I often say that that is exactly what the first couple of years of having a kid is like. It's just like things are flying everywhere and it's, it's complete chaos. And it's like, you have no idea where, you know, which way forward is and which way is backward. It's, it's just complete chaos. So having a kid is very difficult. I think people really downplay how hard it is. You know, I thought I knew how hard it was until I had one. And I was like, mm-hmm. everybody's a liar. <laughs> so it's a huge, 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 huge undertaking even more so than people uh, make it out to be if you want to do a good job you know if you want to like do right by your kid and give them the best life possible it's it's just insane you know and um yeah it kind of goes back to what you're saying earlier just about putting your focus on you know multiple things spreading it out versus really honing in and yeah it's a huge it's a huge time commitment and you know I love my kid to death and I want to give him the best life ever so he's number one so there's there's huge sacrifices that go into it it's it it is very difficult especially because we don't have family in town and you know I mean we have a full-time nanny and even Mm That's not enough. So it's expensive. It's it's all the things that you heard of. But I feel like anybody is thinking about having kids sit down with somebody that has like an infant and like bar their kid for the day. You, you, you know, you'll get a wake up call. But with that said, 
I, you know, my studio is at my home. I have like a two car garage that I've converted into a studio space. So I'm close by. He's with a nanny. So I see him, you know, I'm with him practically 24 hours a day. He definitely does not come into my studio while I'm working. Uh, if he does, everything comes to a screeching halt. I have to put all the open jars of paint up high, hide the exactos. Because he's just okay. like, a, he's, you know, he's a Tasmanian okay, devil. Sure. So yeah. you have to really be careful. Uh, yeah, so there's no artists uh, be aware you cannot get any work done with a baby. Zero. Zero work. So you can't even you can't even check an email. You might not even be able to go to the bathroom. Do you feel like that all kind of came to a halt for you in that first year or so? Like were you kind of putting the studio work on hold for time and, and making that life adjustment? Uh no, I was I was making art the whole time after we had the kid, you know, but you know, I was paying someone for the luxury of being able to work. So Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's a huge expense. It's like an insane amount of money that you have to spend and able to work at a job where payment is not guaranteed, you know, so it's just expensive and not everybody has, you know, we're fortunate enough that we can afford it, but a lot of people can't. So then one of the parents is just like mm -hmm. the nanny and, you know, it's, it's tough, you know, it's, it's very tough. Uh, and I have some friends that do that. And, you know, I, I, and now I totally understand why a lot of people never make art after they have a kid or they just get some like nine to five. Cause it's, it's very difficult. Me personally, I actually, things have gotten better career wise since I've had a kid. So I don't know what that means other than having a kid kind of cor correlated with you know it was around the same time that I also like put everything else to the side and focused on the art mm -hmm. but it's a huge it's a huge time you know it's a huge time suck I mean it's just like you know you want to be around your kid you love them to death and they're fun and all this but then you can't get all the stuff you want done so I don't know it's I don't have any answers. It's, yeah. It's very hard. Well, the way hard. you described your current <laughs> show too, I think sounds very much like, you know, this has really shifted your perspective and thinking about, you know, your work and, and just um, where you're at personally and, you know, where we're at as a society. And so I'm sure all of those things really, um, you know, you, you get to view that now through the lens um, of, uh, of your kid. And I'm sure that, you know, has had an impact, um, or at least it, it seemed that way just in the way that you talked about your own work. Yeah. Uh, so how, uh, I was curious how now, um, you're, you're balancing your time currently just in and out of the studio. Are you able to be, um, painting and, and working in your studio most days preparing for exhibitions? Yeah. So now, you know, for the last like two years, pretty much since I had the, our son or we had our son, um, mm -hmm. uh, I've been painting full time, like, or at least 90% of the time. I, I still do a little bit of design work for friends and people that have been like longtime clients here and there. But honestly, I just do it more as like something to change, change the pace. It's not necessarily just for the money, mm -hmm. but I, I'd say it's like less than 10%. It's literally... It literally only happens if somebody contacts me that I that I already know that was like a client from back in the day and you know they just want my help and it's and these are all people that I'm friends with. So yeah, I'd say most of the time I'm in the studio painting and I have like a very structured studio time again because I have a kid. So I'm in here 9 to 6 or 9 to 5:30. At 5:30 I walk my dog. At 6 my nanny leaves, you know, it's like a well-oiled machine, you know, like <laughs> at like 7:30 I put on yeah. soft music for the kid. At, at 8 he goes 
goes to bed, you know, and if I'm lucky, by 8.30 or 9, my wife and I are watching some sort of TV for like half an hour and eating dinner. So you just turn into like a, your own like drill sergeant and every minute of the day is like scheduled because with a kid, you have to, you can't leave them alone, you know, like they, they need attention mm-hmm. and they need love and they need, you know, they, they love you, you know, you're like their everything. So they just want to be with you 24 seven. So those videos of him dancing in my studio is because he's like, he's completely like mesmerized by my studio because he doesn't get to come in here a lot. So he comes to the back door and he locks on the door and he's like, daddy, daddy, uh, paint, paint, paint. And he wants to come in and like, you know, he sees me doing it. So he wants to come in here and like draw and paint and stuff. And you know, every once in a while he has a, he, he's a big dancer. He's really into music. So I put on, <laughs> I blast different music for him and yeah. You know, but those those things are it's like I know some people are watching those and they're like, man, it's so easy to have a kid to just come in your studio while you paint and they're dancing. It's like no, <laughs> like those every, moments are no, every, few and far between. Yeah, it's like everything's put on. A, it's the exception. Yeah, not the I'm like holding reel. everything in the air like this. <laughs> Well, you know, because he'll like, he'll come in and he'll like see an exacto knife and he'll be like, you know, start stabbing himself. Oh he has no, you know, they're, they're, he's a baby. He has no yeah. idea, you know, what hurts, what doesn't, or, you know, there's no filter. And that's what's amazing about yeah. kids. And that's also what's like really frustrating and difficult is they don't know anything. You have to teach them everything. And it's like, you have to teach them little by little in like very simple ways that they understand, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's like a, it's an amazing, it's an amazing challenge. Yeah. Man, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to ask you about it since Nicole and I, neither of us have any kids. um, And I know we definitely have listeners that do. And it's great to be able to like have that conversation because I honestly can't. I'm like, I'll watch your kids. Yeah, see, the great thing about that is you get the lead, you know, like you have that freedom of like, you you know what's, you know what's the difference between like being around kids or babysitting them? You can hit the pause button. So like before I had a kid, I used to rant and rave about how I hated to sleep. I was not a big sleeper. I don't enjoy sleeping. It's just like a chore that I have to do, you know? It's what I have to do to kind of keep going. Where my life, my wife like loves sleeping. She, she could sleep 12 hours a day and like not bad night. Where me, it's like if I have eight hours, I'm golden. Yeah. But now that we have a kid, he wakes up all night long and like I'm lucky if I average four or five hours and my perspective of like sleep has completely changed because now I realize when I used to pull all-nighters for a week, on Saturday I would sleep in. You know, I'd, 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 catch, I'd, I'd have catch up because yeah. I could hit the pause button at some point when things would wind down. Mm-hmm. When you have a kid, it never winds down unless you pay somebody to watch your kid for you. You know what I mean? So like you'll just go without yeah. with only four hours of sleep for like three months, like every day, seven days a week, you know, so. You never have that reset time so you have to just stick to that structure because that's really that's it yeah if we get six yeah if we get six hours we're like wow man we just hell yeah i'm feeling good yeah Yeah. oh you 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 don't know how like my wife and i were constantly talking about how we can't believe how much free time we used to have and we were like very busy people like i mean i don't sit still ever but now i'm like i just wasted away like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of hours every year i'm like what did i do with my time i could have started like another company i could have traveled the world like i just had all the free time you know you don't realize how much downtime you have until you don't have it so when people without kids tell me they don't have any time to go to the studio or this or i'm like whatever man like you're you're, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about yeah 
It's like, that's a nice sentiment, but you're incorrect. Yeah, no, you are. Myself included. You know, I was a part of that. Like, I, <laughs> I had no idea how much time I had. And I, and I actually feel really lazy. Uh, Amir without a kid was pretty lazy, you know. And if you talk to my friends, they would... I don't think anybody would describe me as lazy, but now looking back, mm -hmm. I'm like, man, I could have done so much more. So it sounds like now the way that you're spending your time is much more regimented yeah. and you're, you are getting a lot of time in the studio. So I'm curious too, is the majority of the support coming through painting sales? And I know that you've received a, a significant grant recently and you know, you're represented by a gallery and you've had numerous, both gallery and museum shows. So do you feel like you've, you've gotten to a point that that is consistent and you're able to start maybe looking out farther down the road uh, a couple years and, and you kind of know what opportunities are coming up. What does that dynamic look like for you? Yeah, uh, I'd say, yeah, I'd say like most of my income comes through art sales now and it was, it's been very gradual. So, I mean, I've been selling work since 2000, since I graduated from grad school, but you know, mm -hmm. I had to build it up, you know, so now it's like fairly comfortable, but I've been through the whole roller coaster of like not having a career and having a little bit of a career now and I've watched other people who have had insane careers where they'll like sell half a million dollars worth of art one year and then like the next year nothing happens so I think the smart way to, for you know artists to look at it is that this thing goes up and down you know and you just want to be able to mm -hmm. you can't get too cocky and think that like it's you know if you have one good year it just means that you had one good year if you sell out a show it just means you sold out that one show it doesn't mean that you're gonna sell out every single show until you're like right. way more established and you have an actual art market because the art market is different than having art sales you know once you have a market like well I'll put it this way so like if you're selling work and you're selling quite a bit of it it means usually it means that you have a gallerist or a dealer or somebody is working on your behalf and making those phone calls and and talking you up in a way to make those sales or maybe you're doing it a little bit out of your studio but somebody is doing that work when you actually have a real art market people are coming to you for the work or they're coming to your gallery so the gallery doesn't have to do a lot of reach out people are reaching it you know to you so like yeah. david hockney has an art market you know people nobody's doing a hard sell to sell a hockney hey have you heard of david hackney yeah you know like that's not happening but for younger artists the galleries are really like the ones hustling or somebody's hustling on the artist's behalf and I mean, when i first started i didn't have a lot of galleries yeah i would sell stuff out of my studio but it was like very inconsistent it's always better to have a gallery that's like really working on your behalf and a good gallery that has a long-term plan for you where they're not just trying to make a quick buck but they're trying to help you like grow your career you know like the long game you know mm -hmm. you know i guess that that's what i'm kind of working towards is like you know i want to be around 15 20 years from now i don't there's so much of, about that stuff that you can talk about like how to price your work and, and then there's a lot of things that are out of your control you have no control over how to market works but right yeah this might be a little bit of a departure but um, I know that recently this year you were awarded a California Community Foundation grant so congratulations on that and, and um, I was reading that one of the benefits is that it includes I think what they describe as uh, like other opportunities to develop business skills and it, it sounds like part of that is to help with some professional 
professional development to create a sustainable career over time. Could you talk a little bit about that? Or like, do you feel that that's, is it too early to say? Or maybe what are some of the ways that that's um, kind of helping you develop those long-term skills? Or what does that look like? Um, Yeah, they had, you know, they had a couple of retreats, or actually, I guess one retreat that I I did go to. And earlier when I said I don't apply to things, uh, I didn't, I wasn't including like grants and residencies and things like that. I think grants that you don't have to pay for to apply are wonderful. And every state, mm-hmm. every state has them. And there's a couple of international ones. And those things are wonderful. You know, definitely apply. And I apply for a lot of things like that. I just don't apply for like, I don't apply for juried shows and I don't apply for anything where I have to pay. But any, but anyway, so as far as like career development, yeah, you know, they had like an accountant there. Uh, I didn't, I don't feel like I learned anything that I didn't already know at those mm-hmm. things, but I could see if somebody was a little bit younger, yeah. they could benefit from that. But I also think like, even if you don't get that grant with a little bit of hustle, you could probably figure out, you know, like, I feel like I learned a lot about a lot of that stuff just from being a curious person and asking older artists, you know, like, hey what do you do for your taxes you know and somebody will say you know like I had one of my professors in grad school tell me like you know if you're selling artwork you can write off everything like literally as if for what we do you can write off movies that you see music that you buy comedy shows all the stuff that influences your work that's a research and development you know so like yeah. you know if you're using your garage uh, as a studio you can write that that portion of your home off so Things like that, I just learned from like asking people. Uh, so the, the courses were, were like that. Like I was hoping to go to the retreat and learn some sort of like magical thing that I didn't know about. But yeah. I walked away from it feeling that there is no easy hack for any of it. And it's just all about yeah, hustling yeah, and being resourceful yeah. and, um, you know, like just being a curious person. Like, I think, was it you, Nicole, in your interview, you were talking about going to the Career Center at MICA? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, I would say maybe Amanda, you and I both really tried to make use of that. And for myself, I would say more so after just graduating undergrad because I stayed in Baltimore for a couple of years and myself and another alum were starting to do a lot of mural painting. And so I think it was more motivated by that. Like, we were trying to develop these business skills and just figure out the basics of like how to do our taxes and how to like price these projects together and just kind of get organized and you know get everything in order and so I wasn't even going with the intention of applying it to my studio work but uh, now obviously those skills and those resources um, are things that I am constantly thinking about um, now that I'm not really mural painting but more thinking about my own work so this is what you and I have in common my freshman year at MICA during orientation they said we have this great career center Nobody ever uses it. There's a book, there's a binder in there full of freelance art and design jobs. You guys should go check it out. Yeah, they've migrated it onto an online platform now. Yeah, so this is, like I said, you know, I'm showing my age. Yeah, but no, but like every, I would say every uh, like job or gig or opportunity, like in those first years out of school, everything came from that. So it really was a helpful resource. And and you know what I did? Tons of murals in Baltimore. That's why when I listened to your podcast. Oh, awesome. I was cracking up because I went to the career center. inside of a kid's dental office? Because that was really our specialty. No. No, I didn't do that, but I had, I probably painted like 50, 60 murals. And this is like, wow. thanks to my graffiti days, you know, 
I would see all these, like yeah. nobody would ever use that jobs, you know, that career center. And so I would go and I would just pull every, every, every job, like logo design. I mean, I didn't even know how to do design work back then, but I just, I was like, fuck it. I'll learn. <laughs> and uh, I applied, I applied, you know, I was a hustler. Yeah. I was just like applying for anything that yeah. I thought I could do. I taught kids art classes, to, like rich kids in the suburbs. I taught inner city kids at like community centers. I did all sorts of random stuff, but murals was my specialty. Mm-hmm. And I would do kids' bedrooms. Mm-hmm. I did a Chinese restaurant and I did nightclub. Yep. <laughs> and, and I got so many mural jobs at one point that I, uh, you know, I would get like a job that was like $2,000, you know, and then back then it was like, that was like a shitload of money. Uh, and for like a couple of days worth of work. And, but there would just be like this one element that they wanted. And I was like, I'm not a good enough drafts person to do this thing and like crazy perspective. And so then I'd go to my classes and I'd find the best representational painter I could find. And I would say, Hey, hundred bucks for a day's worth of work, come and help me with this mural. And I would have them paint that <laughs> one thing, you know? So I'd make like a ton of money. They were happy because they were getting paid like $6 an hour working for Micah. So they made like triple what they would make, you know? And so yeah. I started farming out the work to like other students. And by the end of it, you know, I was barely doing any of the work. Um, and I was just becoming like, uh, you know, I was just being the, I wasn't brokering. I was just putting together the deals and sometimes it would take yeah, a long you're time. Like the I project would, manager, coordinator. So do you work with any assistants now? Are you like outsourcing any tasks in your studio, even for like building canvases? And then on more of like the professional end, are the galleries managing a lot of that side of it for you at this point? So what I'm doing is I have an assistant um, that helps me with the painting part. Mm -hmm. And um, she's not necessarily full time. It's kind of like it's like contractual. So it just depends what I have going on. So we're building up to my show like two months before my show. Uh, I started panicking and, and my assistant was coming in only a couple of times a week. But then I had her coming in like five, six days sometimes towards the end when it was like really gearing up. So my my stretchers and things like that, I get those all custom made. So they come ready to go by a fabricator. But, you know, I'll have her like my work is very process oriented. So like one day I might be painting like 10,000 dots. Like it's just it's a dot day. Like we're literally just painting dots over and over again. So because I have these like very repetitive tasks or like dashes or, you know, whatever, I can have an assistant, I can pick the colors and show them where to go. And then they're just painting dots. So I've kind of figured out a way with my work to have these like break it down into these like little steps. So I can be working Mm -hmm. on some, you know, there's, you know, when the painting is like from zero to 30% or zero to 40%. There's a lot of tasks that really anybody with some sort of basic art knowledge could do. And they're just like repetitive motions. So I'll have them do that. And then that way I can focus on like the details and some of the things that, you know, that really needs my hand to kind of like make it my own. So every painting I do, you know, I'd say like I, I work on all of them. I'm, I'm very hands-on, but these like, you know, who wants to paint 10,000 dots if you, you know, if you don't have to, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so I have, I have somebody help me with, with that kind of thing. And then I work with, uh, how many guys? One, two, three. I work with four different galleries. And so different ones work, you know, some of them are more hands-on, some of them are more hands-off. But my LA gallery, Shulamit Nazarian, they're the ones that I work the closest with just because they're in, they're in LA, they're close by. You know, they definitely help out with things. It just depends what it is, you know? So like for my show, I needed this house-like structure fabricated. So they assisted with that. And, you know, it just depends on what, what the task at hand is. But, you know, I'm in my studio painting, you know, 90% of the time. I mean, I, I try to keep the other stuff to a minimum and just 
you're painting. Mm -hmm. So at this point, do you feel like most of that hustle is able to be centered around the work itself and that um, in terms of managing relationships with collectors or even pricing out work or just handling all of that, um, do you feel like the, the galleries are mostly responsible for that or do you feel like there's still a good amount of work to be done on your end as far as like the professional um, development side of things? So I think... It's different for every artist, but for I'm a very hands-on person, person, so I like to be involved in every aspect. You know, I probably drive some of my gallerists crazy, but I like it, you know, because I come from like a business background, like I want to be, I'm interested in how they market things or who's coming to the dinner for the show or, you know, uh, which press reach outs we've done, like all of that interests me. So I'm, I'm very hands-on with all that stuff. And I find that a lot of my peers that are, you know, fairly successful, they're the ones that are also on top of what's happening with them and how they're being, you know, how their work is being put out in the world what context mm -hmm. their work is out there so i think you can never give give up full control as much as great as that yeah that is absolutely. but i'm also a control freak so i like to yeah but at, at the same time no one is going to push for the success of your work yeah. harder than you will yeah but i like like the personal. sales and things like that the galleries do it but sometimes people contact me for sales and you know and i help out you know, it's a, it's a team effort. You know, I think mm -hmm. when you get it, when you get a real, you know, there's yeah. all sorts of different galleries within like the contemporary art world, you know, and they all function very differently. But for me, I held out in LA for quite a while because I wanted a gallery where we had the same vision and it wasn't just about them selling a painting here and there, but we had a goal, a 10 year plan, and this is how we're going to execute it, you know? And uh, so we're all on the same page. It wasn't just about sales for me. Mm -hmm. Sales is, is a big component of it just to keep the ship afloat, but I wanted a partner in my career, you know? So mm -hmm. luckily, you know, the galleries I work with, they were all, we're all on the same page and they're not just trying to like make a quick buck. You know, it's not a shop. It's, you know, it's like a proper gallery where they're working on their artist career and trying to build career. Yeah long term you had talked to a little earlier just about um, a lot of the advice and support that you'd gotten from other artists within your community and just seeking that out from them and talking to artists who you felt like were a little more established or further along in their own careers and um, just them you know being willing to share insights with you do you feel like there's been any pieces of advice that have really stuck out to you or um, on the under uh, end of it just pieces of advice that you would want to share with your younger self or with um, artists who are you know not looking at at where you are and aspiring to something similar I can't think of like one iconic piece of advice I had but I remember I had Laura Owens was one of my professors in grad school for one semester we got along fine and she's a very important LA painter and she told me this one thing that I feel like a piece of advice that, that I feel like I've given to other artists because I think it's very important to think about. Um, you know, she came to my studio that day and she was like, these paintings look great. You know, it looks good. I don't have that much technical stuff to tell you. Like, you're making it. I think you could sell this work. I think you could make money off of it. Collectors will buy it. Great. She was like, but so what? And I was like, well, what do you mean? And she, she said something. I don't remember the exact words, but so I might get it a little bit. But it was something kind of like, when you go and you sit in front of the parliament of the canon of art history, what would you say your work is about? And how would you justify your work to be in like the history books? You know, so it was like this. She was just like, 
what makes your work special or what is it about you? What, do you, what are you adding to the conversation? That's what she was really saying. What are you adding to the canon of art history is yeah. I think the gist of it. And, you know, I was like 20. I, I yeah. went to grad school. <laughs> what a loaded question for yeah, and young grad what student I, especially. What I should yeah. have said is, well, what would you say about your work? Because I would love to hear the response, you know, but I didn't think I wasn't that clever at the time. And uh, but I always that in the back of my head when I'm in the studio or I'm coming up with work, I'm like trying to think like, what am I adding to the conversation? What am I saying that hasn't already been said? And at the time I was making these kind of like semi abstract paintings and they were they looked fine. And I was selling them here and there. But what, I felt like I didn't I wasn't really adding to the conversation. They were just like nice looking paintings and I could have probably had a decent career at doing them and but I didn't have anything like there was nothing like wonderful or amazing or different or unique that I really felt like I was adding to the conversation on any level who knows if I am now but I'm in constant pursuit of that I like how grandiose of a question that is and like I said like Mm -hmm. if you're if your goal is like super unattainable you know it's super high up and just really outlandish. Well, if you even come halfway, that's pretty good. But if your goal is like, I just want to get by, well, that's not much of a goal, you know? Like, that's pretty damn attainable. Like, yeah. <laughs> like if I was like, this is it. I'm done. This is the highlight of my life. I'm 38 and I'm living off my work and cool. Well, what the fuck am I doing, you know? Like, that sounds horrible. Like, there, there's no, what, what's, <laughs> what's there to drive me? So I'm always, yeah. I'm always thinking about that. Like, it really, she really planted a seed in my mind. And, and I think that's a good question for all artists to think is like, what are you adding to the history of art? Because most of us will add nothing to the history of art. Even if you try hard and even some of these, a lot of these artists that are in museums, like, we're all going to be footnotes, you know, at the end of the day. But I think trying your hardest to not be a footnote, you know, is an achievement in itself. So I think about that quite a bit. It goes back to that idea of legacy, too, I think, you know, like you talk about that um, related to family and, and, you know, the work that you're thinking about now. And it's really, I think, evident that you are addressing those larger issues. And so just to take that bar and really uh, set it up there, I think, you know, forces you to kind of step back and take that much larger perspective and ask those those bigger questions. um, Yeah most art would aspire to address but to to always keep that at the forefront yeah like i always find it i mean i'm i guess i'm in in a sense i'm kind of a competitive person but when people when somebody says to me like i don't want to be the best at whatever they're doing even if they're an accountant or something you know i'm like I don't get that. Like, I don't understand. Like, if you're going to do something, why wouldn't you want to be the best at it? Yeah. I want to be the best artist. I mean, that's like a ridiculous statement. I don't even know what that means. But, you know, but that, that's what I want. Like, I don't go into studio thinking yeah. I want to be a mediocre artist. But that doesn't yeah. sound like a good time, <laughs> you know? Like, you want to have these, like, lofty goals. And it, yeah. I'd rather be overly ambitious than be like, eh, I just want to go through the motions of it. Because, uh, and I think a lot of that had to do with my, with my parents. You know, my, when my parents moved mm-hmm. to America, like my dad owns a restaurant and it's a successful restaurant he lives a very comfortable middle class life and everything's great right but my dad I don't know what my dad wanted to be I don't think he knows what he like he didn't have a passion ever that I that I could tell other than like watching soccer and like eating or something you know like like he likes to go fishing but you know but like there's nothing I can't think of like the one thing that drives his life and I think it's his family his family drives his life you know so being a successful adult and like 
you know, creating a comfortable life. That was his goal. But like, mm-hmm. what if he had a comfortable life? Like, what was his, what would have been his passion? You know, he has a job to make money. You know, if he won the lottery tomorrow, he would never work a day in his life. Cause like, he's not dying to start restaurants, you know, like he just did it. It's a means to an end. But if I won the lottery tomorrow, I'd be in my studio the next day, you know? And that's the big difference between like someone that didn't have those opportunities and someone that did. So that's why I'm like, I really need to like, I've been given this huge advantage, you know, I have this very comfortable life. And so I want to really go, I want to chase after this thing that I'm super passionate about, you know, as big and make it as successful and as like, I can make it because not everybody gets this opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I think our the way our parents do things definitely influences the way that we function as adults ourselves. I know I've learned so much about my work ethic from my dad, who is, I mean, he's a golfer and I, I do nothing with golf whatsoever. But I know that like, because he had this mentality of like, he came from nothing he wanted to be the best and then just last year he got into the golf hall of fame oh that's amazing that is how i like i want to model my career after his career obviously within art but (laughs) not golf yeah but i want to take the the things that i have learned from him on how to hustle and how to work and how to constantly move forward and apply that to my own life I never would have appreciated that in my teen years whatsoever. But as I'm an adult, I'm like, I really, I respect how my parents made me who I am and how much it's influenced the way that I work as an adult. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing I would say, if a good piece of advice for everybody is like, be curious. Like, so for instance, like your dad's a golfer. I've never even played, I've played putt-putt like maybe like three times, but that's about as much as golf as I know, right? Yeah. If I sat next to your dad, I would talk this guy's yeah. ear off about like what he's done. Like I'm such a curious person. Like I'll get excited yeah. about doing taxes, you know? Like I'll just want to know yeah. everything that a CPA does, you know? Because I think it's interesting like all the different things yeah. that people do and how they get from point A to point B. And I think being curious is such a huge part of like not just being an artist or being a successful artist, but just being a successful human is like, I love just hearing about that journey. I think that's why I'm attracted to business. So many artists are turned off by business because they think it's too commercial. But like everything's a business, you know, being a good person is a business. Being an artist is definitely a business at some level, you know, maybe not while you're in the studio making your work. But once you, Mm -hmm. you know, punch out of that studio time, it's, it's, you know, money's being exchanged. Being a teacher is a business. Everything is a business. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I, you know, mm-hmm. like, my artwork gets informed by people that have nothing to do with art just as much as, you know, mm-hmm. people that do. You know, I thought of one good tip for artists, uh, which is one of my professors at UCLA told me this, and he's a pretty famous artist. And one day we started talking about the artwork that he hangs in his own home, and he started rattling off these names, and it's like a, it just sounds like a permanent collection of, the, you know, like, lacma or mocha i was just like wow how do you have all this amazing i was like do you like go and buy at auction and he was like no he's like all of the work i just mentioned he's like i traded when i was in like grad school and when i was penniless with just like my friends and he said he just made it a point to like always trade with his friends and he was like you know this is the best 
this is the only, this is the best currency we have is like each other's work. And he's like, I love living with other people's yeah. work. So, you know, so now he has this like incredible world-class collection, but it was just people that he was like peers with, you know, as, as a, in his 20s and 30s. And so I've made a point to always trade with my, not, not because I'm going to yeah. resell it, but because A, I like living with other artists' work. I find it inspiring, but it's also like an amazing way to, you can get other people's art for free. It's like the one benefit of being an artist is you can trade. So, I have some friends that are very like precious uh, yeah. with their work and they never like to trade and I always think it's funny it's like they're saving it for the retrospective you know <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I'm like I always if I have extra work I always try to trade with people whose you know whose work I want or whose, whose work I admire because even if I can't don't have space to hang it up I try to make it happen because it's 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 an amazing thing that we get to you know live with other people's work and we don't have to buy it you know it's like the only perk of the job so i i suggest yeah. everybody trades as much as possible yeah and i second that i do i'm not in the like gallery world but i'm definitely in the like maker sure. uh -huh. craft show world and at the end of every show i just do like a putz around i'm like you like my work i like your work yeah why not let's exchange and then i come home having spent zero dollars but with incredible work from incredible artists and yeah. it's fantastic. And it's also a way to like, I don't know, mm -hmm. support your peers. Yeah, I love that. But who wants to stare at their own artwork anyways? I'm always suspect if I go to somebody's house and they have all their own work hanging up on the yeah. walls. I'm like, what is this, a museum dedicated to yourself? I've, I've, I literally have, I have one small painting that I gave to my wife when we were dating. It's like literally eight by 10 inches. And, it's, and, it, and it relates to my son and mm -hmm. uh, it's hanging in his room. But short of that, I have nothing of my own work in my house because I'm like, it's all in my studio. I stare at it all day long. You know, I want to look at everybody else's work. Yeah. Well, Amir, is there yeah. anything that we haven't touched on that you wanted to um, make sure to mention? Uh, no, I think, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm good if you guys are. Yeah, absolutely. We're just so grateful that you took the time again out of your studio today to talk with us. So thank you again for just sharing more about your own path and work and, um, your life thus far. It's been really interesting getting to know you a little bit and to find all of those Baltimore connections and just again to realize what a small world it is and how there's always less degrees of separation between people across the world than you think. And uh, I just think it's great too that we can all be talking from Baltimore and San Francisco I know. and LA and uh, trying to make that creative community a little more close-knit. So thanks again for just agreeing to yeah, talk Yeah, yeah, same us. here. Thank you. Oh, I... Uh we always ask uh, where people can find your work online. Uh, just at my website, amirhfala.com. That's it for this episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast. You can find show notes, references, and a brief summary of the episode over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to subscribe to our email list where we have all kinds of exclusive content that we only have available to our subscribers. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Oh, and don't forget, if you are listening via iTunes, please write us a rating and a review. It makes a huge difference as far as the visibility of our show to prospective listeners, and we are trying to grow our show so that we can do more and we can expand and just become a better quality show for you and for us. So if you care about this show, write a review. It makes a difference, and... Uh, there may be a little something in it for you in the future, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for some cool news regarding goodies and giveaways. And he was like, maybe this isn't, maybe painting's not your strong suit. Do you make other work, you know?